Good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. Dave, where are you? Welcome back. Good to see you today. TJ, you feeling better? Very good. Good to see you today, too. Ben and Bonnie. Did you see Ben and Bonnie are here today? Good to see you guys. Anybody else here by surprise? Yeah, Nathan's here. <laughs> no, I'm not surprised by that. Well, good to see everyone, each and every one of you today. Um, well, let me begin. Just, I want to pray for you, okay? Heavenly Father, it's, it's just absolutely true that we are desperate for you. We need to hear from you. We need to see what your word has to say to us. Because it tells us the truth about who you are. And knowing who you are radically changes everything about our lives. So I want to ask for your spirit then to lead us this morning as we turn to the end of Daniel together. I pray that you would impress upon us truth about yourself, truth about our lives and what is needed from here until the end. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11 then? Daniel chapter 11. Why don't you stand with me, and here's what we're going to do. I'm going to kind of read a few portions here and there from this chapter, as well as from chapter 12. So just follow along as I move us along. Uh, We are not going to read it in its entirety. But from Daniel chapter 11, beginning with verse 1, it says this, And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Now, if you'll move down to verse 11, I want to read a portion here. Verse 11, Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. Now verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Now, of this same man who is spoken in verse 21, jump to verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. 
For the ships of Ketim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdrawn, shall turn back and be enraged, and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. Now, if you'll turn the page, if you must, to chapter 12. I'm going to read a little bit of this as well. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. You can have a seat. I thought about titling this message, How Long? How Long? Question mark. But then I got to thinking that might give you the wrong impression of asking me, how long is this sermon going to be? You can tell chapter 11 is a bit lengthy. And then we're adding chapter 12 to it. But really, I think the more appropriate title is, what do we need to learn about from now, really, from the time that Daniel's writing it, till the end? What would God have us to learn about what must take place and what we need to know about it? So, now this is the end, okay, the end of our time in Daniel today. And so it seemed fitting to maybe just reflect back a little bit on where we have been and think about overall what the message of Daniel is about. Right? The, the theme of Daniel, if you could put it in a word, is that God is in control. God's in control now and always. You remember that the king of Israel may have been shackled, he may have been removed from his throne. The city of Jerusalem may have been wiped out. The temple may have been in ruins. But God was never shaken from His place as King over all. 
And Daniel and his friends witnessed this reality, right? Firsthand through their experiences in Babylon and then even into the time of the Persians. Again and again, God displayed his ultimate rule over all kingdoms. And this theme, although it's displayed everywhere, is also put to words, and we see it first by Daniel himself. Remember this from chapter 2? Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. And in chapters 1 to 6, the first half of the book, God's message is really for the rulers of the world and their kingdoms that, hey, there is one God and He will have the final word. And this refrain surfaces again and again. The confession of Daniel becomes the confession of Nebuchadnezzar, that pagan king. And the confession of Nebuchadnezzar becomes the confession of Darius the Mede, the the first Persian king. And it was this, the Lord is sovereign, not me. The Lord alone is able. His kingdom alone is going to last. And so how should the church of God react to a truth such as this? Well, Max Lucado, I like how he puts it. He says this. He says, stabilize your soul with the sovereignty of God. That's how you bring stability into your life. You recognize that God's on His throne. God's in charge. And when you rest in that, it gives stability to your life. Isaiah wrote this. He said, The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. And He will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. But you see that? He will be the stability of your times. And the last half of Daniel, when we started looking from 7 to 12, it's really this. Hey, don't forget the kind of God that you serve. That's the call. A call specifically for God's people to not forget that God is still in charge. Because the visions that Daniel sees in this latter half of the book, it really unpacks a fuller picture of what must take place before God's kingdom finally gets there. And it's not simply a matter of getting home to Jerusalem. In fact, he comes to find out that there's going to be nations, beast-like nations, that dominate, that persecute God's people. Or to put it another way, There's going to be a prolonged time in which God's people will be tempted to think, is God really still in control? Right? The kingdoms of this world seem to be having their way. And so the big question is, well, what is God up to in all of this? What is He up to in all? Is there a purpose in this prolonged time in which it appears that we wonder, is, is God in control? Well, let's take a look together and see, right? We are in chapter 11 of Daniel. But remember that 
10, 11, and 12 are one unit. Okay, they're, they're talk about one single event. And chapter 10 kind of introduced us to this vision, and it gives us this summary. It says, now what I had to tell you, what the message is about a great conflict. Okay, a great ongoing war. Okay, now notice how the end of this chapter comes to you. Verse 21 of chapter 10. The angel is speaking to Daniel and he says, But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, the angel, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Did you know that there is a book? You saw it there, right? What is inscribed in the book of truth. And this book is already written, and it tells all of history. David made reference to it in Psalm 139. I'll put it up there for you. He said, Your eyes, God, saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So your days are already written. In fact, every day of history is already written. Now, a skeptic can come to this chapter and flat out reject it as prophecy because they'd say, no way. It's too accurate to have actually told the future. They'd say, it had to have been written after the fact or maybe as it happened. There's simply no other explanation. Well, that's true other than that if God is supernatural, which is really what the Bible tells us, right? That God knows the future, that He stands outside of time, and God has already declared the beginning from the end. And if He's all-knowing and if He's in control, then it's not hard at all to accept that what God told us here was told before it even happened. And for the sake of God's people then, and even today, he revealed the following to Daniel. Okay? Now, what you're going to read is a very selective history. It doesn't tell us everything that happens in history. Okay? It's not the history of the Americas or the history of China, but a very particular history. Okay? You'll want to notice what it focuses on. right? So if you're with me, and look at verse 2. It says, I will show you the truth. Here it is. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has come, become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So, there's a few more kings in Persia, and then a fourth one comes, and it says he's going to be richer than all of them. Well, he was known in history as Xerxes, okay? You know that name, because... He was the husband of Queen Esther, right? The Jewish maiden. Okay. Well, this same king, King Xerxes, sought to invade Greece, right? He set his sights on invading further west. But his attempts ultimately failed. In fact, it was during this invasion that the famed Battle of Thermopylae took place. Remember this, right? Led by Leonidas and those 300 Spartans. Actually, there's a lot more than that. 
but they held them off for a little while at that pass. That's when this took place. Okay. Persia failed. They retreat. Well, quickly the text turns to, in verse 3, to a mighty king of Greece, right? Then a mighty king shall arise, who's, who shall rule with a great dominion and do as he wills. But verse 4, as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. This guy's synonymous who we already talked about in chapter 8. Do you remember the goat from chapter 8? Flies across the face of the earth, the face of the earth and totally destroys Persia. Well, this was Alexander the Great. That's who's been talked about here. Okay. Who, in accordance with the verse as it says, did not pass on his achievements to his own family, his own kin. But his kingdom was scattered, right? And four generals took his place, right? And those four generals spread out across four regions. So, this again follows the plot of the four horns that we saw in chapter 8. But from here on out, we're introduced to a greater specificity than we have yet seen. Because the text kind of centers in on two of those four Greek kingdoms. Okay, You've got the king of the south and the king of the north. And in history, they're called the Ptolemies, the Ptolemaic dynasty. They were in the south, okay, in Egypt, and the Seleucid dynasty. Okay, This would have been the king of the north, okay, around Syria, Babylon. Okay. So from verses 5 to 20, we have a very detailed account of the perpetual conflict between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Okay. Now, if I could give it a subtitle of this section from verses 5 to 20, I'd call it this. The Outcome of World Conflict and Politics 101. Okay. Now, if you wanted to, you could dive into these, these verses and you could identify the real-life people behind each of them. It covers a span of years from 322 to 175, and it makes reference to 13 of 16 rulers that we know about between those two kingdoms. Okay? But what you see is that it's conflict after conflict, war after war, okay? strategy after strategy to try to get an alliance between these two, but it never holds, and the peace never lasts. Just notice this trend. Okay, I'm going to highlight a couple things just from this passage. Okay, Here's from verse 6. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her. Okay. Again, verse 11 and 12. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall not, or it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. Or again, in verse 17, he, that's the king of the north, shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them, he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom. But here it is again. It shall not stand or be to his advantage. So I just wanted to highlight a few things. What they did in verse 6 will not endure. 
What happens in verse 12 shall not be given into his hand, and it shall not work out. And then again in verse 17, it shall not stand or be to his advantage. The point is, things just don't seem to be working out for anybody here, do they? Now really, is this not a synopsis of all world history, of all world politics and conflicts, even to the present? All it is, is an endless shift of power from one side to the other, but nothing is permanent, nothing endures, nothing lasts. It's chasing the wind, or as one author wisely said, evil will always destroy itself, because it cannot control itself. And that's the tale from verses 5 to 20. But you're probably asking, now why are these two kingdoms, right, the north and the south, given such attention? Why is Daniel told particularly about this history? Okay. Well, let's look at a map here, okay? See the bottom there, the blue part? That's the Ptolemies there in Egypt. And there's the yellow part up there in the north. That's where the Seleucids reigned. But what do you see as very conspicuous in between these two? Right about here. Here, I'll even circle it for you. What's that? That's called the land of Israel, right? Or as Daniel calls it, the beautiful land. You see, the details of this history are not given because they're significant on the world scale of things, but they're vastly significant from the vantage point of God's people. Because they're caught in the middle of this, right? And it's not just that these kings are against each other, but ultimately they're really against God and his city. So trouble is coming to the people of God. And the text tells us that mistakenly, some of the Jews are going to join in on this fight. Did you see that in verse 14? We didn't read it, but look at verse 14. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision that they shall fail. What's the point? Well, what they tried to do, they tried to fulfill God's vision using political power. Okay? They tried to use world power to establish a heavenly kingdom. Well, here's a good verse not to put too much stock in Christians fighting mainly on political fronts to bring about God's plans. You think a political party or a political nation can usher in God's kingdom? Listen, they will never be on the same team. Now, I don't think this is saying that you aren't involved as a citizen. No, Christians preserve society. As Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. It's not your involvement that's this question, but how you're involved, right? What your aim is. We cannot make things happen in God's program. I hear more and more of this among Christians today, this kind of name it and claim it Christianity, that if you declare it and you claim it, God will do it. Have you heard this before? It almost sounds like he has to do it. God has to comply if you do that. Well, God doesn't have to do anything. In fact, it's never a good expression in the Bible when people lift themselves up, right? That's an expression of pride. And Daniel foresees, he's told, they will fail. Their efforts will fail. Let me come back to the question here. 
What's God after in allowing his people to face such trying times, right? Why put them between these two warring nations? Well, God and God alone is able to turn an awful evil or a severe trial into something good. In fact, that's what's illustrated in the second part, the second phase of this vision, if you put it. Okay, so beginning in verse 21 and going to verse 35, the focus is on one particular ruler from the north. Okay, because of the way that God is going to use this guy for his own purpose. So let's subtitle it this way God's purpose in trials. Okay, verse 21 to 35. Now, we read it, right? Verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. In, his, in history, his name was Antiochus IV. Do you remember talking about him? He was also called Antiochus Epiphanes. And his agenda was to Hellenize the Mediterranean world. And what that meant was, if you were in his realm, you were expected to adopt the customs and the beliefs of the Greeks. Okay. Well, this didn't square very well with God's law, right? And for that reason, it singled out the Jews for a particular kind of distaste and hatred. Notice verse 29. Again, this is in his conflict with the south, but it says, At that time, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Kittim shall come against him. In fact, the Romans got involved in the conflict, and they turned him back north. Okay, And he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and look at what he does and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. He goes on to desecrate, destroy the temple, and so forth. And in the face of such violent antagonism, two results happened, okay? Two results of this persecution against God's people, okay? First, okay, First result, some forsook. Some Jews said, okay, I'm done. And they let go. They violated God's covenant. Here's something interesting. The only reason that this guy, this Antiochus, had any success in Jerusalem at all is because there were some who accepted his flatteries and they gave in to the pressure. They were enamored with Greek culture. Oh, look how great it is, right? And they compromised. And that just leads me to ask, well, how many churches are facing the same such compromising pressures and flattery today? You realize that right now, the United Methodist Church is now splitting over gay clergy and same-sex marriage. Say, well, what happened? Well, here's what happened. The liberal agenda gained a foothold within that denomination because some people from within it rejected or have rejected the authority of the Word of God. 
Okay? They become enamored with an inclusivist culture, right, that has to appease everyone. Franklin Graham made a very astute comment, and I think it explains how you come to such a compromise. This is what he said. I believe this is because we have become so accustomed to condoning and overlooking evil rather than staunchly opposing it. We have lost our moral courage over evil, and apparently we will go to great lengths and deluded rationale to accommodate it not confront it and deal with it headlong. He also said, evil is now not only condoned and accepted, but it is being actively promoted by virtually every segment of our society, even into the church. So what the Jews faced under Antiochus is really what we face in our present day under the spirit of the Antichrist, okay, which is already here. First John tells us that. In fact, this Antiochus is actually put forth as a type of the Antichrist who is to come because they're both called, they're both referenced in Daniel as this little horn. They're called that. And the third phase of this vision, if you were to follow from 36 on to 45, okay, kind of brings these two figures together. The point being, Antiochus sort of forms the model which to compare the ruler to come. Now, there's no clear shift where it begins talking about him, but what you see here is that the person that's described seems to go beyond the historical Antiochus. For example, verse 36, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. Well, Antiochus didn't exactly do that, at least not to this scale. In fact, he goes on to worship gods his fathers did not know. So this is a larger, this is a more ultimate figure that's being talked about here at the end. Furthermore, what we know is this, that unlike Antiochus, who met his end somewhere in Persia, that's where he died, verse 45, if you look at that, it says, And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So it appears that this king is going to perish somewhere between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. And we know from Revelation that the Antichrist will gather in a valley called Megiddo, or where we call the Battle of Armageddon. Okay, this is what's being described here. So, clearly this goes beyond the figure of Antiochus. So, if the Antichrist is yet future to us, and his spirit is already here among us, then we're already seeing the same kind of splitting result that's happening among church-going people. People associated with the gospel, with the covenant, the new covenant in Christ. John tells us about such people. He says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But what happened? But they went out, that it might become plain 
that they are all not of us. So the spirit of Antichrist, now at work, has the same effect now as it did in Daniel 11. The presence of this deceiving evil will lead many away from the truth. That's one result. It's going to lead many away from the truth. But there's also a second result here, a second effect that this kind of persecution and this kind of hardship is going to have on God's people. Okay, So looking again at verse 32, notice this. He shall seduce and with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. Here's the second result, right? There's going to be three things that mark God's people. Number one, they stand firm. The people who know their God will stand firm. Now, there's an implication here, right? You must know God before you could ever stand for God, right? Because they know Him, they'll stand for Him. Now, did you know that you can know this God? Because Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. God invites you to know Him. Not know about Him, but to know Him. But you must acknowledge your need for a Savior. Because sin has ultimately broken that relationship. Okay? You'll never repair that breach. So God in His own love covered the cost with the blood of His Son. And He says, you trust me. Trust me with your life. And if you have really done that, then the admonition is, then stand firm. Right? That's Paul's command to believers. Stand firm then on the Gospel. And by the way, guys... This book of Daniel is really a testament to doing just that, right? Daniel stood firm, refusing to eat the king's choice food, right? Can't do that. Then in chapter 3, his three friends stood firm and refused to bow to an image, right, that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then Daniel again, right, in his old age now, thinking, oh, life will be easy now. And then what happens? Right? He's threatened to quit his devotion to God when it gets outlawed. But he stands firm. And a righteous stance sometimes calls for righteous action. And that's the second thing you see here, right? They take action. The people of God, firm in their stand with him, uphold principles of righteousness. It's not a call to military action, okay? It's a call to act on what God says is right. It's a call to moral action. Okay? So when the Hebrew midwives were told, hey, you need to kill all those male children who are born to the Israelites. You're getting too much for us. What did they do? They refused. Right? They took action, fearing God more than men. And they saved those babies. Or when the wicked Haman threatened to annihilate the Jews through Persia, what did Queen Esther do? Well, she put her own life at risk and brought the request to the king to save her people, right? She took action. She did the just thing. 
They stand firm. They take action. And did you notice the third thing they do? They will make many understand. The wise will teach others. Okay, They'll encourage others to look to the ultimate realities. They'll say, hey, live life for the eternal. Not for what you can get here and now. Store up treasure in heaven. Okay, They remind us that it's through our sufferings and through these stumblings. Right? Did you notice the emphasis on stumble? The wise will stumble. They'll be put to the sword. They might go off into captivity. But it's not a stumbling so as to fall. But according to verse 35, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be what? Refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. That's what it's for. So that God's people are refined. What an assurance, right? Not only for Daniel and for these future generations yet to come, but for the church of God today. Hey, God is not in it to destroy, to break us permanently, but he's allowing only what is needed to refine and to purify you, right? To make you white. Just turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12 for a minute. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, the author writes, And have you forgotten? Meaning, we forget. Okay, that's implied there. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 7, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, here it is, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You would have no stimulus, okay, no drive, no force to stand firm or to take action or to turn other people to God unless you saw history from God's vantage point. What is God up to? Do you? Do you live in light of God's glorious future plan for you? Because you need to see where all this is headed. The vision doesn't stop with verse 45 of chapter 11. It actually continues right into chapter 12. Okay? I think we could subtitle this last part, 
as this, okay? Living with the real end in view. Living with the real end in view. Notice this, verse 1, right? At that time, well, what time is he talking about? Well, since the last verse spoke of a future Antichrist, this is a reference to a time yet future even to you. Right? We're beyond us now. Okay? Before this happens, by the way, many of us who are sitting here now listening to me will have died. We'll have met our end. And the question is, will it have been worth it if we died having stood firm, taken action, and taught others to follow Christ? Will it have been worth it? Well, that depends, doesn't it? On whether or not death is the real end, or if there is something beyond it. So reading on, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Now look, everyone whose names shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust, that is, who have died, shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The real end is not death, is it? The real end is judgment. You don't cease to exist when you die. In fact, your spirit awaits a time when God will awaken all people, uniting their spirit with their body. Okay, We call this the resurrection from the dead. And then what? Well, then you face the throne of God where He decides to grant some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. And you will forever be in one of these two states. So, those who are delivered are written in the book. Did you see that? They're written in the book. Listen, guys, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then we are most to be pitied. That's how Paul put it. We might as well stop trying. But we're immensely privileged to stand today. Do you know why? Because we're living in the time of the end. It's no longer just Daniel's words that we have to go by, but God has confirmed it all. When? Listen. When Christ was raised from the dead. Since that has happened, then you also know that there is a day coming when He will judge all people. So, what will be the judgment for you? The book that Daniel's talking about. It's called elsewhere in Scripture as the Book of Life, or the Lamb's Book of Life. If you have taken your stand on Jesus Christ, that is, you've believed upon Him, and you have confessed Him to be your Lord and your Savior, then that is where your name will be, in that book. And resisting the pressures of evil, even to the point of death, will be worth it, because on the other end, you know what awaits. It's life forevermore. And Daniel says, you will shine like the stars of heaven. So Daniel's great book ends okay, with a little, we'll just call it a follow-up session. Okay? There's some questions. 
after Daniel hears all this, you'd probably have some questions too if you were the one receiving such a vision, right? Well, first he hears one angel asking another, how long till the end of these wonders, right? Well, that's a good question. And the answer comes, well, it's going to be for a time and times and half a time. And then we go, okay, well, i got a few more questions. <laughs> so Daniel then says, well, what will be the outcome of these things? And here's the answer. Look at the answer. He's, look how he's redirected, okay, in verse 9, chapter 12, verse 9. He said to Daniel, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. But note this. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. The important thing for you, Daniel, the important thing for you, saint, it's not that you know it all, that you understand it all and get it. In fact, he says it's sealed up until the end. It's not going to become clear until it unfolds in history. That's when it gets clear. Okay. Actually, Jesus' arrival has clarified much for us. Like even the, the resurrection. Okay. But here's the important thing. Okay. It's taking what you now know and living in accordance with it. As Peter asks, hey, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he's talking about the present earth, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Or as it's put in John, and everyone who thus hopes in him, what do they do? Purifies himself as he is pure. So, saint, go your way. In other words, live for the kingdom now. Don't get caught up thinking there's a way to force God's plan. Don't be flattered and seduced by God-forsaking men. And listen, don't lose sight of the real end. It's not death. It's the resurrection. And remember, God is still in control. Right? The days are marked. Right? Did you see that in verse 11? There shall be 1,290 days. And then he says, Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. You know what I take from that? God has it down to the day. It's marked. So hold on. That's the point. Keep holding on. Because until then, the refining must continue. And one day, your flesh will see God, right? You'll see him in your own body, and you'll be given your allotted place. You remember how this book began? It began with Daniel going into exile, right? Being taken away from his homeland. And it ends this way, right? With Daniel finally being brought to his home, right? The last verse. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest, and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. God had a place for him. In fact, he has a place for all his children, and he will get us home. So till then, go your way. Meaning this, stand firm, take action for righteousness, 
and make many turn to God through Christ. Now, if you meet with a small group, I suggest doing it, because you know what? You can get to explore these two chapters with a little more depth. If not, read it yourself. Read it again. Ask some questions of it. Certainly we could not cover all of it in one go, but I hope you got the main point. Let's pray. Lord, there's much to happen. Much has happened. And Daniel, and through the revelation given to him, has not left us in the dark. But we know and should expect that there will be wars, and there will be rumors of wars. There will be calamities. There will be political friction from here on out. But despite the chaos that's happening around us, you have told us that you are still in control. Not just of all those things that happen, but also in our life. And so, God, I pray that you would then do the refining work that needs to happen in us. Lead us into firmness upon the gospel. Help us to take action as necessary and to lead many people to Jesus Christ, who is our wisdom and righteousness. We ask this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.